0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, Jim Morrow from the Charlotte Observer joins me to discuss the events that led to the nullification of North Carolina's 9th Congressional District election results. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the Public Morality. I believe a new election should be called. It's become clear to me the public's confidence in the ninth district seat general election has been undermined to an extent that a new election is warranted. Those were the words of Republican congressional candidate Mark Harris. In the aftermath of the midterm election for North Carolina's ninth congressional seat, Harris held a 905-vote margin over his opponent, Democrat Dan McCready. Though the 2018 midterm elections are in the past, North Carolina's 9th Congressional District still hangs in the balance. Almost immediately, the race was held under a cloud of suspicion and allegations of impropriety surfaced. On February 4th, the North Carolina State Board of Elections held hearings, and on February 21st, the board unanimously voted to call for new elections in November. The irony, in a run-up to the midterm elections, President Donald Trump, to gin up his base, warned of Democrats who would try to steal the elections. The only report of broader misappropriation was conducted by Republicans for a seat they've held since John F. Kennedy was president. Joining me to discuss North Carolina's 9th Congressional District race is Jim Morrill. Morrill is a reporter for the Charlotte Observer. Jim Morrill, welcome to The Public Morality. Hey, thank you. I
1: appreciate the invitation. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's begin by having you provide listeners with a Reader's Digest version, starting with election night and how we arrive to the present moment.
1: Wow. Um, well, election night seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? Yeah, indeed. But uh, uh, Mark Harris, who had been the surprise winner of the primary back in May in the Republican primary, uh, beat Democrat Dan McCready by 905 votes in the 9th District. And uh, your listeners may not be from the 9th District or familiar with it, but it runs from central Charlotte to uh, past Fayetteville to Bladen County. And so that's where we were for about two or three weeks. We, we thought, and Mark Harris thought, that he was the winner of the election, and he even went to orientation sessions in Washington. And I, I'm told that he even picked out uh, uh, the color of his office walls. So there you go. Things change.
0: So, so at what point did it become apparent that there may be some uh, voter improprieties at work?
1: Well, it became apparent to the public on November 27th. That's when the board, uh, State Board of Elections met in Raleigh to certify elections, and they certified uh, elections throughout the state. But one member, uh, Josh Malcolm from Robson County, uh, raised a red flag about uh, the ninth District elections. He's from Robson County, and he said that he had been familiar with some i think he called them unfortunate activities in that part of the state and so the state board met in closed session behind closed doors at that point for a while and came out and voted unanimously not to certify the ninth district and so that sort of uh caught everybody's attention and then uh uh gosh then it went from there it uh, Kind of spiraled from there, and, and reporters flocked down to Bladen County after a couple of days and, and started talking to people. There had been, been some signs, uh, peculiar signs, uh, leading up to this way back in the primary. In this goes back pretty far, it goes back several years, but in the Ninth District, it goes back until 2016. In the primary that year, There was an anomaly in in the Republican primary where the one candidate got, I think it was 221 out of 225 absentee votes, um, which kind of went below the radar until all this happened.
0: Now, this is a seat uh, that has been in Republican hands, I believe, since John F. Kennedy was president. Is that correct? Well, I I think
1: even before, you know, they... they, uh, I always thought it was uh, from the early 50s, but it depends on how they realign the districts. And the district had been changed many, many times. Uh, you know, it's different now than right. it was even uh, four years ago. So, uh, but yeah, basically from this area in the 9th district, as it's known, it always had a Republican. A member of Congress, so and it is a pretty conservative district, now, now, uh, especially in Union County in Southeast Charlotte.
0: Now, now, how was it that Republican Mark Harris, who you, um, who who was the uh, nominee, how was he able to defeat the incumbent uh, Robert uh, Pittinger, in the primary? How, how how did that occur?
1: Well, you know, I think uh, in the primary he carried two counties, um, Bladen County and Union County. And uh, he said, even he even said on the stand last week that he ran in Union County as if he were running for county commissioner. So he went to everything, you know, every luncheon, every every dinner, every rally. But um, you know, Pittenger had defeated him in 2016, just a couple of years ago, and Pittenger beat him by 134 votes. So it was a you know really close election, and it kind of stuck in. Uh, Harris's craw that the race was so close and that he lost and he wondered what he could do differently and that's when he decided to hire this guy at the center of all these allegations of of, um, illegality frankly uh, a guy named McRae Dallas from uh, Bladen County and Dallas ran an absentee ballot campaign in 2016 he worked for the candidate who got the preponderance of absentee votes in in that county, and so Harris wanted to hire him.
0: If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Jim Morrell of the Charlotte Observer, and we're discussing the events that led to the nullification of North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. Um, you mentioned McCrae Dallas. Why don't we pick up from there and, and tell us a little bit about who he is, and he has a rather unsavory background, if you will.
1: Yeah, that's one way to put it. I think, he's been a, I think he served time in, for uh, a couple of felonies. One, in, There was one instance of insurance fraud, and uh, there was another felony on the record, and I, I'm blanking on what that was. I think it was perjury. Perjury, right. Perjury and insurance fraud, which are two red flags you would think if you're going to hire somebody. And... Uh, Uh, So he ran this absentee ballot operation in in Bladen County, and he'd been doing it for apparently for quite some time for different candidates, even different parties, um, depending on the situation. And he was at the center of a state board hearing in 2000 after the 2016 election where where the Republicans, ironically, were uh, complaining about some. Uh, irregular activities in Bladen County, and he was sort of at the center of that, and he, he testified to the State Board of Elections at the time, and they had uh, recommended uh, an investigation by the district attorney at the time, and I think it reached the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District in out of Raleigh. But anyway, he was he was still doing this in 2017 when Mark Harris went up to him.
0: Well, I mean, the, I, I, you can't. I can't miss the irony that you have a a pastor. I guess he, 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 you know, at this time a former pastor, who then hires someone who's got two felonies, you know, perjury and, and and the other charge. They just, you know, and you're running for a congressional seat. That just seems like an incongruent match.
1: You know, he claimed that he didn't know that. He claimed that he had done a background search, or his people had done a background search. And it showed a couple, couple misdemeanors. Uh, he told me at one point that they had only searched Bladen County, and some of these, the perjury and the other charge, had been elsewhere in North Carolina. Well, it's not hard to do a background search on somebody and look at the, uh, you know, their their record at the Bureau of Prisons, or uh, you know, do some kind of a statewide background check. So it seemed. It seemed a little uh, uh, sloppy, frankly, to do just a a county check on that. And you may be getting to this, but the drama in in last week's hearing was that his son is the one who kind of blew the whistle on him. Reverend Harris was saying, you know, he never had any warnings about McRae Dallas. He never had any sense that he was up to something that he shouldn't be. And his son had told him, you know, from the get-go, that, uh, that there was something shady going on with this guy. And his son had done a deep dive into the numbers for previous campaigns and seen some strange patterns of absentee votes. And And uh, the day after Mark Harris had met with McRae Dallas for the first time, his son had a series of emails that were produced at the hearing that were, Frankly, pretty damning
0: uh, and, and let's talk I was going to get to it later. but we can talk about it now let's Let's talk about his son because this I mean, his son has a professional background that's slightly more than just a son concerned about a father.:
1: Yeah, you know, I don't think anybody really knew what to expect when the son took the stand. In fact, uh, Dr. Harris didn't even realize that we're told until the night before that his son was going to testify. But his son is a lawyer. His son works for the U.S. Attorney's Office. He's only 29 years old, but, you know, he seemed to have a good head on his shoulders and was very uh, polished and had a good sense of right and wrong. And he, he told his father through this series of emails, uh, again, the day after Mark Harris had met McRae Dallas for the first time, his son began sending out these red flags in in the form of emails and he even at one point sent him the statute that showed what he thought mccray dallas was doing was illegal and that is uh collecting absentee ballots from voters and uh you know bringing them to the election mailing them in batches to the elections office and that was illegal and and john harris's son uh was pretty clear about that and he he was he he was uh very clear in his warnings to his father. You know, that day, and his father, during his own testimony, kind of dismissed those warnings. He was asked again and again if he'd had any warnings uh, or seen any red flags about uh, what McRae Dallas was doing, and he kept saying he hadn't seen any, and he finally dismissed what his son had said. He said he was only 27. He'd never been to Bladen County, uh, which turned out to be kind of a mistake, and I think he admitted that at the end. Hmm.
0: Uh, Now, uh, talk to me uh, about how Dallas was able to pull this off. How how was he able to obtain um, those, uh, the absentee ballots, those those requested absentee ballots? How how was he able to do what he did?
1: Well, according to testimony, uh, including, this was another uh, kind of a, a shock from the hearing, but a woman named Lisa Britt, He's from Bladen County, and who's the stepdaughter of, of McRae Dallas testified against him, basically. And she said that they would he would hire people to go out and and uh, get people absentee ballot applications and pay them about four dollars for every application they got, uh, four or five dollars for every application they got, and then people would take the applications back to the board of elections and then they would send them at ab- the board of elections would uh, have the applications and they would send the voter absentee ballots and then the voter would either fill them out or not fill them out and when uh, mccray dallas would send people back to the same voter to make sure they were sending uh, the ballots in you know it was there was testimony to the fact that some people had filled out their ballots, some people hadn't. And some of the McRae Dallas workers filled out part of the ballot uh, for the people. And this woman, Lisa Britt, said they took some ballots back, and McRae Dallas himself filled out the ballots or had them filled out at his house. Um, and then they mailed them from different parts of the county so as not to be. Um, you know, sending up another yet another red flag to the Board of Elections that they were all mailed by the same person uh, or the same people.
0: Now, the, does that explain why some of the reporting that I've heard that 75% of African-American absentee ballots requested in Robeson County and 40% in Blayton were not submitted? Is, is that how you get to the, those numbers? You know, I think they
1: probably sent out a lot of uh, – a lot of applications, a lot of people got absentee ballots and some of them weren't returned. Um, and it was never clear though, the hearing frankly didn't last long enough for our people. Um, uh, when, you know, Mark Harris pretty much ended the hearing when he called for a new election, but it was never, there was never ever any evidence that the ballots had been destroyed or not, not sent in. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that was uh, the presumption behind maybe behind your question that some ballots were destroyed or not returned. Um, so I don't think anybody really knows that. I mean, if you look at the numbers, there were a lot of ballots that were not returned from uh, those two counties, Robson and Bladen County. And the, and the people, the lawyers for the uh, Board of Elections said later, after it was over, that they they probably could have shown that the Um, uh, fraudulent ballots, either ballots that weren't returned or ballots that were mishandled or, uh, you know, had uh, too much involvement from mccray Dallas, would have exceeded the number, the margin by which uh, Mark Harris won the election. He won the election apparently on election night by 905 votes. And they probably could have proven that the number of ballots that were bad exceeded that number
0: Mm. Mm. Uh, has the district changed how how, i mean this has always been a republican seat you know i I guess i guess one that was the one the fascinating things for me as an outsider always been a republican seat have the demographics changed such that this type of tactic would be warranted to hold on to the seat
1: um, well, that's a good question. You know, I think that it's only been in the last couple of years, last couple of elections, that the district has gone to Bladen County <laughs> and Robson County. Uh, for many years, it included Mecklenburg and Iredell and even Gaston County. And then um, until about four years ago, it included Iredell, Union, and Mecklenburg County. And then in the last iteration of it, when they redrew it, they drew it out past Fayetteville to these other counties, and apparently this stuff had been going on down in Bladen and Robson County for a long, long time, and people just didn't pay a lot of attention to it. Um, you know, this, this is a pretty high-profile race all of a sudden. You're playing in the big leagues. You know, the ninth District is a you know, pretty big district in North Carolina, and Charlotte is a pretty big media market. Uh, Fayetteville's a a big media market so all of a sudden you have this stuff that had been going on for a long time kind of in the backwaters of North Carolina you know being on a bigger stage and so I think that this may have been going on before and and McRae Dallas had been doing it before but now people started paying attention because it impacted a Charlotte race you know frankly um, and, and a race that Republicans had spent a lot of money on, both sides have spent a lot of money on. You know, uh, Dan McCready ran a closer race this past year than any Democrat had in a number of years in the 9th District. Um, and you saw how Democrats did nationally. So Democrats put a lot into the race, and Republicans tried to keep it. And uh, I don't think any other race in North Carolina, you saw the kind of spending that you saw in the 9th District.
0: Now, uh, maybe this is unrelated and bear with me, but after the Supreme Court, my words, gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, a number of states, including North Carolina, um, that were previously under the jurisdiction of Section 5, immediately made provisions to make voting more onerous. Um, North Carolina, uh, depending on who you talk to, may have been the most egregious in that, especially for low-income voters. And I'm wondering... Do you think Dallas uh, may have been emboldened by a climate that was already created in, in, in the backdrop of the uh, gutting of the Voting Rights Act in um, Shelby County versus Holder?
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. I don't know that I would go that far. Um, he seemed to be kind of a free agent down there,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and he might have been doing this even before. I mean, the the, the the decision you're talking about, you know, affects the districts, and it's why Um, North Carolina districts no longer need to get pre-cleared by the Justice Department, (laughs) um, which which happened before Shelby Beholder. And, and, uh, you know, it seemed to me that he was just doing what he was doing down there because he could, you know, and he he realized he could make some money off of it. Um, You know, it came out during the hearing that uh, the Harris campaign had paid him over one hundred thirty one thousand dollars and part of, it was, part of the strangeness of last week was that there was virtually no oversight. Uh, Harris uh, paid McRae Dallas through the Red Dome Group, which was Harris's major consulting firm, and they, didn't, they had virtually no oversight of what McRae was doing. If McRae told him that he needed $1,500, I uh, gave him $1,500. If he told him a day later that he needed $1,600, I gave him $1,600. And this this went on and on, and there were very few invoices, if any. And uh, Harris himself uh, sort of kept an arm's length from it. He just said he left it up to the uh, consultant to take care of it and to interact with McRae Dallas. So, you know there's a lot going on in North Carolina with voting voting and voting rights and, and redistricting and I, I think this may not have been particularly related to it
0: so 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 a lot of there were a lot of transic, transactions just via word of mouth and 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 not a, a large paper trails Am I understanding that correctly yeah
1: i mean uh Andy a who ran the Red Dome group who was Really, the chief consultant for Mark Harris. He's the guy that reporters talked to, that we were directed to, to talk to about the campaign. Uh, He said there were no, virtually no paper trail with with McRae Dallas. You know, that uh, he called it a done deal by the time he, Andy Yates, got hired by the campaign in the summer of 2017. uh, Dallas was already a done deal as far as Reverend Harris was concerned. He'd already brought him on. And
0: um, apparently without
1: a whole lot of a lot of oversight or accountability, there is very little paper trail. Hmm.
0: So now now what happens uh, looking forward? What happens to Harris? Does he run again? Is there another primary involving Harris? Uh, How is it that a nullification? um, How does that affect, I guess, the will of the voters? I mean, I I know I asked you a lot there. I'll just let you unpack it and we can play with it, if you will. (laughs)
1: Yeah, you know they haven't set a date for a new election yet. That's the next uh, sheet to drop from the state board. Uh, It'll probably be a May primary and an October general election. As to whether Harris is going to run, I think it's going to be hard for him to run. Although I heard today that he's been making calls, uh, that he started making calls right after the hearing uh, to sort of gauge support, apparently, uh, for a run. But. um, You've got other candidates coming out of the woodwork now, uh, talking about running. There's a couple, at least one former commissioner from Mecklenburg County. There's a former state senator from Union County, which is really, you know, population base of the district. There's other people too, and it, it seems really hard to imagine how Reverend Harris would, a, get anybody to work for his campaign at this point, and b, raise the money that he would need to race. Uh,
0: what, what about the uh, f- the former incumbent, um, uh, Representative Pittenger? Pittenger? Yes.
1: Yeah, Representative Pittenger, I think he has moved on. Um, he said uh, I'd had some email exchanges with him over the weekend, and I asked him if he was having second thoughts. He had, he'd he taken himself out of the possibility of running a month or so ago, even before there we knew for sure there would be a new election, but He's kind of moved on. Reverend uh, Mr. Pittenger is uh, 69 or so, almost 70, I think. And he's got a a new gig, which uh, builds off of what he did in in Congress. He was involved with international parliamentarians um, on counterterrorism activities and uh, conferences and things like that. And he's really traveling around the world as we speak. Uh, doing these kind of things, and I think that's sort of where his head is right now. Mm-hmm. So it could be a wide open race.
0: Any uh, and, and 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 of course, uh, McCready is going to run again. He is definitely running, and he's
1: he's he's been off and running ever since this all happened. I think uh, November, since November 27th, when they declined to certify the race and raised some questions about it, he's been raising money, and he's raised uh He had raised over half a million dollars uh, even a month ago um, in the first month that this was playing out. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, all the presidential candidates now are kind of jumping on his bandwagon. And and I think people like Elizabeth Warren and uh, Kristen Gillibrand and even um, um, the woman from California. Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris have been. Uh, trying to help him raise money. so And that's just the tip of the iceberg. If there's an election uh, and uh, it goes into October, you can bet that a lot of Democratic presidential candidates would be here on their way home or to South Carolina. <laughs> the South Carolina primaries in uh, in
0: March, well, February. I'm, well, I'm wondering, given the, the, um, the margins, I mean, this race will not change the majority that the Democrats in the House currently enjoy. So is the fundraising, is this going to get expensive because Democrats want to be seen as doing a favor for McCready, or Republicans going to join in and sort of draw a line, line in the sand, if you will? Yeah, that's a good question.
1: Uh, you know, it's going to be the only congressional race this year. Um, well, I take that back. There's another one in North Carolina, isn't there, in the third district where right. Walter Jones passed away. Um It'll definitely be a high-profile race, given all the all the attention, national attention, given to the circumstances of the, of the election fraud that we saw, and there may be some, um, you know, legal ramifications for people involved in that. So I don't think it'll get national attention, and I would think Democrats would uh, probably spend more money here than Republicans. Um, you know, it's, it's still a Republican district, though. I mean, on paper. It's still a Republican district. Now, I think McCready is going to try to run on, you know, the culture of corruption and all that, and maybe that'll be a a play for him. But there's still a lot of conservative voters in this district, so it depends on who the candidate is.
0: Um, Are there any criminal charges
1: pending? No, although I think uh, one of my colleagues at the News & Observer, our sister paper, had a story the other day about – Lauren Freeman, the district attorney from Wake County, um, either re-engaging uh, an investigation that she already had from 2016, and incorporating some of this testimony, and I'm sure there will be some criminal charges. To be honest with you,
0: now, I was just wondering. I mean, how does how does Dallas uh, escape criminal charges? How does Harris escape criminal charges? Because you know, he bears some responsibility because it's his campaign and. And we've seen before, I didn't know, is, is not necessarily a, a, an effective uh, alibi.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't think Dallas does escape any charges. And, and whether Harris does or not, I don't know, it could have something to do with whether he runs again or not, too. I was just talking to somebody who said if he runs, uh, you know, that's sort of asking for trouble uh, again. Um, and maybe that, brings more attention to you know more prosecutorial attention to it but um you know he he may be on thin ice he came close to uh, saying something under oath the other day that uh, apparently wasn't true uh, when his lawyers sort of stopped the hearing and in, in mid 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 question and uh, took a break and when they came back he made he read a statement saying there should be a new election
0: so I, I mean that right there, I think, is what sort of got me. Really like, hey, I want to do a show on this because you you had intrigue that seemed like a made-for-television series. The 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 the, the, the stepdaughter uh, of Dallas testifies. The son of of Harris testifies. He's giving a statement halfway through, and then and it's like, wait a minute, I want to redo. We need to have <laughs> we need to have an election. I mean, I just that was like 180 degrees from what we had had up until that point. And I was just, I mean, like, who wrote this? <laughs> I know. Spike Lee, maybe. You know. yeah. I don't know. Um, uh, you're right. It's
1: uh, you know Nobody could have uh, kind of uh, written it with all the plot twists that it had from the stepdaughter to the son to the sudden turnaround. And not only did he read a statement saying there should be a new election, but he said he'd had two strokes. We knew he had been in the hospital for a couple of weeks. He'd had some infection. Maybe it was more than a couple weeks. Uh, he didn't say a lot about it, but at one point he put something on Facebook thanking people for their support during his hospitalization, and he talked about the infection. But on the stand, out of nowhere, he said he'd had two strokes while he was in the hospital or while he was dealing with this infection. So it's like, whoa, hit me again, you know? <laughs> it uh, it was uh, really bizarre and stunning. The whole week was pretty stunning.
0: Well, Jim, if you, if you ever get tired of uh, working for a newspaper, you know this, this has all the makings of a novel. You just change the names and just, re- re- just, just, yeah. <laughs> just write what you've already reported. I think you've got the makings for a great novel. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, maybe so.
0: Jim Morrow, um, Charlotte Observer, thank you, sir, for joining me today on The Public Morality. Much appreciated. That was Jim Morrow. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks.
1: We are beginning these hearings today in an atmosphere of utmost gravity. The questions that have been raised in the wake of the June 17th break-in strike at the very undergirding of our democracy. If the many allegations made to this date are true, then the burglars who broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate were in effect breaking into the home of every citizen of the United States. And if these allegations proved to be true, what they were seeking to steal was not the jewels, money, or other property of American citizens, but something much more valuable, their most precious heritage, the right to vote in a free election. We will inquire into every fact and follow every lead, unrestrained by any fear of where that lead might ultimately take us.
0: Those were introductions that began the Watergate hearings on May 17, 1973, by Senators Democrat Sam Irvin of North Carolina and Republican Howard Baker of Tennessee. They don't teach civics in school anymore. It's not important to science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, otherwise known as STEM education. That's unfortunate, because the aforementioned subjects, as valuable as they are, have nothing to do with teaching us how to be citizens. As a result, we're currently getting a correspondence course on civics in the public arena. We learned last week that Article I of the Constitution gives Congress the power of the purse. Whether or not one supports a wall to protect the southern border, to do so in the manner that President Donald Trump is pursuing, calling it a national emergency risk-placing appropriations, which rests in the legislative branch at the pleasure of the executive branch. To support what the president is doing means to support similar actions by any president, regardless of party, because it would fundamentally shift the relationship between the legislative and executive branches. We also learned, at least I hope so, Impeachment does not mean removal from office. It is only a vote for a trial to be conducted by the Senate. It takes a simple majority in the House of Representatives to impeach, but two-thirds in the Senate to convict. And with the testimony of former personal attorney to the President, Michael Cohen, we will most likely learn this week the amorphous phrase that is a prerequisite for impeachment, high crimes and misdemeanors is a wide swath ranging from an actual crime to how members of Congress feel that day. This is not a prediction. I have no idea what Cohen will say. I know that whatever side one is on, they will most likely hear what he says by how they feel about the president. Though highly unlikely, impeachment and conviction could conceivably occur without any violation of the law, It remains unclear that President Andrew Johnson was impeached for anything beyond not bending to the will of the radical Republicans in the House. Matters of impeachment and conviction are, in essence, overthrowing an election. The infractions had better be serious. But it still hinges on a reasonably informed citizenry. It is an incongruent proposition to be a free and ignorant people, and certainly one that will not lead to a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located at SoundCloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.